Welcome to the SPE Podcast, powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers. You're listening to SPE Live, Market Outlook, Oil Prices for 2023, U.S. Natural Gas Market, and more. The audio from this episode was previously recorded on February 22nd, 2023. And now your moderator, SPE Virtual Programs Development Manager, Natalie Femayetti. Welcome to this SPE Live on Market Outlook, Oil Price for 2023, U.S. Natural Gas Market, and more. My name is Natalie Famiglietti. I am the SPE Virtual Programs Development Manager, and I will be your moderator today. It is now my pleasure to introduce our guest. Edward Hears is a leading energy economist. His work has informed U.S. national security policy under both parties. He is a co-founder of Zero Carbon Cycle, LLC, a sustainable fuels company, and advisory director to an independent oil and gas company. He is a UH Energy Fellow at the University of Houston, where he teaches energy economics and an advisory director to the Energy Industries Council. Ed is a Forbes contributor and energy expert for KHOU Television in Houston. Ed attended Yale University, receiving his BA with honors and distinction in economics, MA in economics, and MBA. Ed, Welcome to this SPE Live. Good morning. Ed, um, let's start by talking about the current events happening with Russia and China. Is this affecting the oil and gas markets right now? And what it could mean for the industry in the future? Yes, yeah, so we've got a lot of short-term actions underway in, in you know, having to do with the war in Ukraine. Um, in particular, uh, uh, first of all, going back to this time last year, the, the Western nation, the allies, uh, announced financial sanctions against Russia. And so that began to restrict Russia's access to global oil markets, mainly because they couldn't be paid in hard currencies. Over the past year, Russia has found a way to evade that, mainly by dealing with China and India to, to sell them oil uh, through the fleet of ghost tankers via uh, pipelines. And um, in fact, there was a, a lovely Bloomberg article today talking about how Kazakhstan is shipping its oil, which is really Russian oil, uh, to Germany and to Western nations. So there's been a, a bit of oil la- laundering, if you will. Uh, so we, we've seen some decrease in Russian oil production, maybe about a half a million barrels a day. And that's primarily because the Western oil service companies have left Russia. Um, Russia never really de- took the time to develop its own internal uh, oil services uh, uh, industry or, or really uh, technology to develop and advance their, their uh, uh, production and development. So we've got that, that pressure, if you will, on the market. Uh, it's it's um, not really too terribly significant. The, the imposition of the Russian oil price cap, if you will, by the Western allies, some 34 nations, uh, basically telling the Russians, we're not gonna buy your oil for anything more than $60 a barrel, uh, has been totally ineffective. Uh, and, and, and really not much of, a, of an issue. With China, 
keep in mind that China consumes about 14 million barrels a day. And production in China really hasn't changed since uh, 1995, when they produced about four to four and a half million barrels a day. Today, that, that domestic production for China is still about four to four and a half million barrels a day. Uh, one of the, the changes that we see going into all of 2023 is the uh, uh, ending of the releases by the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Over the past year, that has averaged almost a million barrels a day as the U.S. ran down its, its SPR to provide resources to the European nations who, who lost access to Russian crude and to uh, help keep uh, the world oil price down a bit. Uh, as it turns out, data show that China has been uh, uh, storing as much as half a million barrels a day. Uh, you, you could argue that the releases from the SPR in the United States have added to the uh, uh, Chinese strategic reserves. So with, with this kind of background in place, we look at, at the oil price, which currently is about 70 odd dollars per barrel. Um, that's down significantly from what we saw uh, early in the war and, and through some of the summer. Uh, it appears that OPEC, uh, without regard to Russia, that OPEC is very interested in keeping the price at this level. And I, I expect it to kind of stay at this level, uh, give or take uh, any kind of, of uh, extreme actions that could occur, uh, uh, a broadening of the war in Europe, or perhaps uh, even peace breaking out, which would which would be certainly uh, good for for global anxiety and perhaps relieve uh, some upward pressure on the price of oil. Now, thank you for your insights, Ed. And you mentioned OPEC, and that's actually part of my second question. So let's continue with that. So what do the prospects for a recession in the U.S. mean for oil commodities and how does OPEC come into play? Well, certainly the, the pros prospects for, for a recession have, have put a damper on, on economic growth. And while a lot of folks in the administration and at the Federal Reserve think that we're in for a soft landing, that could be, but it's possible that we could have a recession. The higher interest rates in the United States have certainly put a damper on home prices. And we've seen home prices drop 10, 15, even 20% in some of the major markets. Uh, this is where new growth, new building, new investment always occurs. And, and the, the industry kind of, kind of moves up. Uh, from that. It, it employs people, it helps with the building supply. And so this, this slowdown in investment in infrastructure can be a challenge for the, the global economy. And, and if the United States dips into a recession, we could have some real challenges. Um, we've seen over what, a couple hundred thousand layoffs in the tech industries. That's, that's had a big impact, for example, in California. Uh, that has a, a, a downward pressure, if you will. Uh, but look, looking, looking further at how OPEC is adjusting, they certainly aren't doing anything to provide new production. Uh, they announced uh, uh, what a, a 2 million barrel a day cut against their quotas, but that really hasn't come into play either because, well, frankly, they weren't producing at their full quotas. 
the the data point that I've been watching with the Middle East in particular is that the rig count in the Middle East is still 20, 25% below pre-pandemic levels. Never before has the rig count in the Middle East stayed down this much for this long. And, and this goes back to what the Secretary General of OPEC said in September. He was very concerned about the lack of reinvestment in the oil patch. Uh, and, and that lack of reinvestment, of course, is, is what OPEC sees in the Middle East, as, as well, of, of course, as, as what is seen in the United States. Uh, Ed, I would like to continue with the third question. And um, in your opinion, what is currently the largest oil market concern? I think really it's the war and uh, a broadening of the war that interrupts Russian deliveries of crude oil to China or India uh, would have a ripple impact across the, the broader oil markets. Now, we've we've kind of boxed Russia in, but we're allowing this oil to go to China and India. Uh, you know, the only effective way to really cut off the Russian uh, ability to to get hard currency for oil is to absolutely physically block the delivery of oil. Um, you know, we don't know who blew up the Nord Stream pipelines, but that was a physical blockade, if you will, of Russia's ability to move natural gas to Germany. We haven't seen that with oil. But if those flows to China and India are interrupted, then China and India will have to go someplace else to buy that oil. And that would be a tremendous upward push on the uh, uh price for oil globally. You know, our, our research and, and research dating back several decades shows, of course, that the price of oil is very inelastic, uh, demand inelastic. And so for a 1% decrease in supply to the market, we would see a 20 to 25% increase in the price. And that relationship has held pretty well over the last dozen to two dozen years. Now, this is a, a very interesting, Ed. Th thank you for your insights on that. Uh, now, I really would like to move to uh, natural gas. So what is your forecast for the U.S. natural gas market for this year, for 2023? Well, I don't think the, the price of natural gas is going to get much above four, four and a half dollars per MCF. Uh, we certainly had a big spike in the natural gas price. Uh, during the summer as, as Europe turned to U.S. LNG uh, companies to, to build up supplies to, to get through the winter. Um, uh, the price of natural gas reached $8, $9 per, per thousand cubic feet. Uh, and, and today it's somewhere around $2.50, a little bit lower, uh, mainly due to a mild winter here and, and less demand, if you will, uh, globally. The, the LNG producers in the United States typically buy natural gas in the uh, spot market. They don't really buy ahead. <clears throat> and so uh, if, if they turn up buying, that's a, an added increase in demand. But we, we've reached the point really dating back to September where the domestic supply has more than caught up with demand. We have uh, uh, reached, you know, very significant uh, increases from the shale plays, the, the Hainsville, the, the Marcellus, the Utica. And we've had tremendous increases in the natural gas coming out of the associated oil plays in the Permian. Uh, at one point in the fall, the price of natural gas at Waha went negative. 
And so it's really just a matter of distribution and getting natural gas to its its markets. You know, had we had pipelines to the northeast, uh, you know, the folks in Boston wouldn't have been paying the LNG price of thirty five, forty dollars per MCF. Um, but but still within the confines of what is the the physical uh, market that we have for natural gas in the United States. I don't expect the price to to jump much uh, uh, above four, four and a half dollars in MCF. Well, this, this is good. And <laughs> um, I would like to move to. You know, let me let me just add that 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 we know that the marginal cost of bringing this natural gas from these shale plays is not more than a dollar fifty mm-hmm. per MCF. So, you know, it's still profitable to to drill and develop natural gas resources at at two and a half to three dollars. That's not an issue. Yeah. Uh, th- thanks for that uh, clarification, Ed. Um, I would like to move now to the power grids. Um, I'm sure a lot of people from our audience, they have questions about power grid. Um, so what do you see as the future for the grid? And is it really a choice between renewable versus natural gas for the next generation of power plants being built? You know, I don't think it's a choice between them. I think we're going to need both of them. Uh, in Europe, for example, we've seen a, a tremendous challenge as the price of natural gas jumped dramatically. Germany brought back online a bunch of coal-fired power plants to supplement their, their grid production. Uh, France delayed the retirement of a number of their nuclear power plants. Um, the, the, the UK imposed windfall profits taxes on the renewable fleet because you know, when, when the price goes up, for, for power because of an increased price of natural gas, the price also goes up for the renewable power plants. It goes up for the nuclear power plants. In the United States, we have an energy transition that is uh, in, in full bloom. Uh, in Texas, we have at least 35 gigawatts of renewable energy on the grid. This is the largest nameplate capacity of any uh, grid across the United States. Um, but what we're facing is a, a situation where the legacy power plants, the nuclear, the coal, and the natural gas plants are, are being used less and less as we go forward. But because the renewable energy is not brought along uh, battery storage yet, we need the, the coal, the natural gas, and the nuclear to be there when we need them, when the weather's bad. Uh, to keep in mind, kind of, or, you know, to, to give an absolutely off the wall extreme example, for example, with, with Texas. Maximum demand in August of this past year was 80 gigawatts. And that occurred in an afternoon. So if we had to count on wind generation, the, the way it's currently f- configured to, to give us that 80 gigawatts, um, we would need maybe as much as 400 gigawatts of wind generation nameplate capacity, mainly because the wind kind of dies down in West Texas and and we can only count on about 20% of it being there. Now, again, this is an extremely extreme example. Uh, With a build out of solar, with a build out of transmission, we don't need to build that much wind. But this gives you an idea of of the amount of overbuild that's going to be required 
for renewable energy. Maybe we need uh, uh, 250 gigawatts of wind and solar combined in terms of nameplate capacity to be able to to take up the slack and and do what we need to do uh, with the the uh, uh, to replace gas-fired plants and coal plants. The market direction is is very difficult to ascertain, mainly because the leadership in Texas hasn't determined what it's going to do yet. The owners of the natural gas and coal plants are looking at the fact that they are at the end of their operating lives. The coal plants average 50 years in age, the natural gas plants average 30 years in age, and for eight of the 10 years prior to 2021, they did not earn a return on capital. And Wall Street's not going to advance you know, five years of capital for a gas plant, 10 years of capital for a gas plant, uh, just because of one week of price gouging. And so there has to be some sort of accommodation to, to basically keep a parallel electricity generation infrastructure in place and to also uh, add the expense of building out additional transmission facilities to, to accommodate the location of, of wind and solar uh, and, and bring that power to consuming regions of the state. And that's a problem that's faced Texas first, mainly because Texas economic growth has been just stupendous. Um, the, the state's GDP has gone from 1.25 trillion in 2010 to 1.99 trillion in 2021. Uh, the fleet of, of natural gas and coal-fired plants really didn't change at all. Uh, and, and so this sort of backbone of, of economic development needs to be addressed for the state to go forward. Other states are gonna face this problem mainly through attrition as, as old plants are retired and the regulators and governmental authorities kind of wonder how they're going to get by um, uh, in future years. Uh, thank you for that information, Ed. And actually you mentioned Texas and that's on my next question. Um, so we can't talk about power grid without mentioning ERCOT. Has the state of Texas done anything recently to help fix the issues with their grids? No, that's a short answer. <laughs> so, so in Texas, um, Texas, uh, the ERCOT grid is, is what we call an electricity only grid. Uh, and so if we think about this with, in terms of say, uh, a football team, uh, or a baseball team, only those players taking the field get paid. And, and that's the way it's been in Texas now for 20 years. Only those generators actually turning electricity into the grid are getting paid. Uh, there's no, there's no payment on the side for, for the players on the bench, the ones that you need to come in in case of an injury or, or a switch hitter, a pinch hitter, or a, a relief pitcher. And so because Texas does the play this way, we've got a, got a situation where, say in August, all of the power plants need to be operating. And, and we know that if, we, if all of the power plants don't operate, then the, the executives of those companies have to go home to, to families that are very unhappy with them. Uh, but for 80% of the year, most of those, those plants, you know, we only run maybe 70%, you know, and so for, for those players who aren't in the game, 
who aren't earning a living, it's really difficult to keep them uh, ready to go. And so the owners of these generation company plants have, have just closed them down. Yeah, no, thank you, Ed. So in general, in summary, how do you see the oil and gas market for this year and the next 10 years? Just a summary. I know you, can, you don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> oh, no. Well, as an economist, I can certainly give you, a, give you an answer. Um, how accurate it'll be, we'll have to come back in 10 years and find out. So, so, so at the moment, you know, we're going to have short-term price volatility, mainly relating to the war. You know, going forward, we see a lot of, of action in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and and pointing in that direction. But we, we also saw what happened over the summer when there was a shortage of, of fuel uh, across the, the global network of, of oil consumers. And you know, lately we've seen BP and Shell um, emphasize and go back to their, their, their roots of being an oil company. They know they have to provide hydrocarbons to keep uh, the population in the 21st century. You know, looking ahead, we can see about 3 billion people are going to join us on this planet, mainly due to energy development, mainly due to energy development of fossil fuels from the find offshore Ghana that, that, that basically exploded the, the entire oil and gas industry off of Western African nations. We are bringing generations of, of people into the 21st century. They're not all going to get a Ford F-150, but they all want iPhones. They all want access to the internet. This is going to be a tremendous resource of growth for, for the global economy and, and for humanity as well. I don't see demand for hydrocarbons dropping over the next 10 years. This is the easiest way to get energy to, to remote populations. It's much easier than stringing up power lines. The Western nations, if they're going to, to supplant that, need to be investing in putting nuclear power and, and wind and solar into these regions to, to basically uh, uh, supplement or, or, or supplant the use of natural gas and, and crude oil. I don't see that happening. It's, it's an energy transition. Uh, transitions come with cost and, and, of course, great benefits. But as, as we bring these 3 billion people into the, 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 the global economy, uh, it's, it's going to put a strain on, on developments, uh, distribution, and, and certainly you know, those of us in the developed world will see this in, in higher prices. So this is, is a very positive uh, comment for those in oil and gas. Um, so what about for the students that are entering the industry, the oil and gas industry? Do you have any feedback for them? Should they take any other um, subject to be on top of uh, what is happening? Uh, for example, if you are an e economics professor at the University of Houston, should they take uh, some of those uh, classes? As a professor, what is your feedback or suggestion for these uh, young professionals and students entering the industry? Well, I, I uh, you know, uh, more than a third of my students are engineering majors. And so 
uh, I appreciate the fact that, that I have a, a new resource, if you will, for students going forward. You know, it's important for these students to, to understand the position of oil and gas in the global economy. You know, there are substitutes for oil and gas. Uh, we're going away from coal, but coal is still a substitute. Hydroelectric is a substitute. Solar, wind, the development of, of consumer markets, you know, going, going away from the internal combustion engine to electric vehicles does not reduce the need for oil and gas. Uh, certainly in, in terms of, of, of natural gas fired electric generation, which can power uh, uh, EVs. We know that, that in the grand scheme of things, uh, coal is, is significantly dirtier to combust, to, to mine, to develop, and, and to do away with the tailings, the ash. Um, and natural gas is, is, is maybe just uh, 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 50% as dirty, if you will, to combust as crude oil. So as we go forward, we're going to see a greater shift to the use of natural gas to reduce greenhouse emissions. Um, and and I, I see this as a, a dynamic time for, for majors in the petroleum engineering science and geology and geophysics. Um, you know, this is all about how we, we acclimate to, to operating on this planet. Um, having having a, a perspective of how markets work I think could be very helpful and useful for the students and the graduates. Thank you, Ed. This is uh, very encouraging <laughs> to uh, those young professionals and the, the students uh, and for experienced professionals as well. Um, so be before we finish this SPE Live, do you have any final thoughts on the things happening around the world with uh, oil and gas, uh, with power grids, uh, with uh, so many things happening uh, around the world and uh, how that is going to affect the market. We have about three minutes before finishing, so hopefully we can uh, <laughs> get everything within those third, uh, three minutes. Oh, oh sure. So, so one of the great challenges for the developed nations has been the reinvestment in infrastructure. In the United States, we've known for more than 10 years that the grid needs a, essentially a $2 trillion rebuild. And many of the, the European nations are also facing this. Uh, you know, we have a tendency to build a highway and, and think that it's done. We have a tendency to string a transmission line, a local distribution company, and we think that we're done and we don't have to come back and do anything with it. But we're finding more and more over time, we have to go back and rebuild bridges. We're going to have to rebuild transmission lines and local distribution companies. Uh, as the, the global economy becomes more attuned to electrification, you know, that's putting more, more demand on the system. Uh, just locally, our transformer in the backyard blows up almost you know, every 18 months without, without fail. It's like setting a clock. To fix that, the, the local distribution company in Houston, such as Centerpoint, is going to need to run more lines. And, and that's expensive. Nobody really wants to pay for it because it's not something you see. And so keep in mind that, that the value of energy is really not in what you have to pay to, to have it come to your house or, or your vehicle. The value of the energy is in what it allows you to do. It allows us to, to have refrigerated food. It allows us to have 
have uh, iPhones, computers, uh, Zoom calls. It allows us to, to get to work and do things of, of a very high value add. And, and, you know, kind of thinking that, gee, $4 a gallon for gasoline is, is too expensive. That's not the case. In Europe, of course, we're very f- uh, familiar with the way, uh, uh, well, fuel prices work out to $8 or $9 a gallon. Um, and, but the value that it brings, it allows you to get to work. And, and your, your pay rate is certainly significantly higher than that. Thank you, Ed, for your feedback. We have one uh, question from the audience that we can take before closing this SPE live. So do you think geothermal helps to stabilize demand or current production output in crude or natural gas? This is coming from LinkedIn. Yes, not not at the moment. Uh, There needs to be a a lot of investment in geothermal to to make it a really significant uh, component of, of of our energy supply chain, if you will. You know, there's some geothermal developments in California that are that have been quite successful. Of course, we all know about Iceland. Um, you know, I've seen some development plans for, for Texas, but to, to access that geothermal requires some deeper wells and some, you know, more expensive materials use. Uh, nobody so far on Wall Street has, has stepped up with the money and the funding that's necessary to, to make this a significant component of our our global energy equation. Wonderful. Uh, We are already in time. Uh, Ed, thank you so much for your insights. It has been great having you back here on an SP Live. And to our audience, uh, thank you for your comments, for your questions. Thank you for being here today and see you next time. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for listening to the SPE Live podcast. For more content, visit the SPE Energy Stream, the industry's digital pulse at streaming.spe.org. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and review. Join us next time on the SPE Live podcast.